Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. This podcast is sponsored by Talkspace. May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and Talkspace, the leading virtual therapy provider, is encouraging people to talk it out in therapy. By talking or texting with a supportive, licensed therapist at Talkspace, you'll gain insights, discover truths, and experience breakthroughs that will improve how you live and how you feel. With Talkspace, just answer a few questions online, and you'll be matched with a therapist. And because you'll meet your therapist online, you don't have to take time off work or arrange childcare. You'll meet on your schedule, whenever you feel most at ease. Plus, Talkspace works with most major insurers, and most insured members only pay a $25 copay or less. No insurance? No problem. If you want to make progress toward a mentally healthier place, Talkspace is here for you. Now get $80 off your first month with promo code SPACE80 when you go to Talkspace.com. Match with a licensed therapist today at Talkspace.com. Save $80 with code SPACE80 at Talkspace.com. Hey friends, Elisa Childers here. Last week we talked about the age of the earth, and today we're going to continue our discussion of cosmic origins. Why do we exist? Why does anything exist at all? Did it all happen by natural, random processes? Today's guest says no. She says cosmology, astronomy, biochemistry, and other disciplines strongly support what she calls the maker thesis. We're going to ask her about it in just a moment. today is Melissa Kane Travis. Melissa is assistant professor of Christian apologetics at Houston Baptist University. She's pursuing a PhD in humanities focusing on the history and philosophy related to scientific and mathematical thought in the Western tradition and contemporary scholarship. Melissa worked as a bench scientist in the fields of biotechnology and pharmaceutical research for five years after obtaining her undergraduate degree and has spent more than a decade exploring the science science, theology, and philosophy related to the origins debate. She's also an author. She's written a series of incredible apologetic storybooks for kids, and that's called the Young Defenders series, and we're going to talk about that today. In fact, parents, if you have kids, just pause the show, go over to Amazon and order these uh, Young Defenders series apologetics books for kids. I've read them to my kids. They are awesome. So she's the author of a new book called Science and the Mind of the Maker, What the Conversation Between Faith and Science Reveals About God. So Melissa, thanks so much for coming on the podcast today. Thank you for the invitation, Elisa. Well, faith and science are two disciplines that many people think are sort of contradictory in nature. They just think, you know, faith, science, they just can't get along together. They're just so different. 
And this leads some Christians to shun science, and some skeptics even believe that science in some way can disprove the existence of God. I actually hear that all the time on Twitter and on other social media outlets. But you wrote a really interesting blog post about this a while back, and you argue that there is no such thing as a scientific argument against the existence of God. In fact, that's what the blog post is titled. It's titled, Sorry, No Such Thing as a Scientific Argument Against the Existence of God. What what did you mean by that? How how is there no such thing as a scientific argument against the existence of God? The reason is when a skeptic makes an argument using science as the foundation, they actually are making a philosophical argument. We can't look at scientific data and compile enough of it and enough different kinds of it in order to somehow demonstrate that nothing exists beyond the material world. And the reason is science is limited to only investigating the material world. So if someone wants to say, point to science and say, Um, look, based on this data or this data or this data, I conclude that there's no such thing as God, then they're making a leap to philosophy and it can't properly be called a scientific argument. Now, it has to be said that there's also no such thing as a scientific argument for the existence of God. I really don't like that phrase, scientific apologetics. I use it sometimes just so people know for sure what it is I'm referring to. Uh, But it's a little bit misleading because we can't, just like we can't compile scientific data and say, look, this proves the existence, this disproves the existence of God. We can't do that and say, look, this proves the existence of God. And anytime I'm speaking to an audience or I'm writing for uh, my blog or writing in a book manuscript or what have you, I'm always very careful to point out, look, these are thoroughly philosophical arguments. What we can do, however, what the skeptic can do and what the theist can do is use scientific evidence as support for one of the philosophical premises of their argument for or against the existence of God. So if more Christians and more skeptics alike were aware that what they're doing is actually philosophy, then I think it would diffuse a lot of this tension we have between science on one hand and faith on the other. And Christians would be perhaps a lot less fearful about interacting with science and um, further researching the different views on how to harmonize um, the claims of Christianity that impinge on science and the scientific data that impinges on Christian truth claims. And that's a really important thing you just said, because, you know, back when I first started studying apologetics and I was kind of just trying to find my legs in it, and you'd hear a lot of people saying, well, this, you know, scientific um, evidence proves God. And I remember just from even the beginning thinking, I mean, I, I I don't have a background in philosophy, but even so, I was thinking, I don't know if prove is the right word, because to prove something is is like it's irrefutable. But I think what we're saying, and, and I'd love to know how you would word this, 
But when a Christian is bringing scientific evidence that they believe is supporting the conclusion that God exists or that something beyond the material realm exists, how would you uh, suggest we word that? Something more along the lines of, uh, you know, I've come to the conclusion based on this evidence, or how would you word that? My favorite way to say it is when I consider this set of scientific data from this scientific discipline, it seems to me that for reason X, Y, Z, this data is pointing us beyond Mm. that it's not proving anything transcendent to the natural world, but it, but for these reasons, and then you must give reasons, it seems to be pointing us beyond to something higher. And nine times out of 10, you can use the word mind. Mm. So um, as I'm looking at this data, it seems too rational, for example, to be the result of blind material processes. So it seems to suggest that the fundamental truth of the universe is something rational rather than just blind matter in motion. Right, which is really what the Darwinian evolutionary paradigm is teaching, that we all got here and everything's here based on an unguided uh, process, natural process, that there's no intelligence behind it. And so what, you know, you're saying that there's, there's evidence through philosophy that that's not necessarily true. Right, right. And of course, there we have arguments, counter arguments, counter counter arguments um, in the philosophical realm about the merits of what we could call design arguments, the merits of taking scientific data, plugging it into a philosophical argument. Uh, and this debate goes back hundreds of years. So it's not anything new based on um Darwinism in particular, this kind of debate was happening long before Darwin entered the scene. So that right there tells you that at the end of the day, fundamentally, these are philosophical Hmm. disputes because they were going on before modern science even came about. One of the things I love about you and what I think makes you really unique uh, in the world of apologetics and theology is that usually somebody is more of a science person and then you've got the philosophers on the other side of the tracks and the historians on the other side of the tracks. And you sort of have this blend of you're, you're in science and philosophy at the same time. So, so what originally inspired your interest in the intersection of Christianity and the natural sciences? You know, I've spent a lot of time reflecting on that uh, because I really didn't begin seeking out knowledge in this discipline until my mid-20s. But as time has gone on and I've reflected back on the earlier years of my life, I actually think the first glimmer of this very interdisciplinary interest of mine goes back to when I was seven or eight years old. My family had just gotten rid of uh, the 
rabbit ear antenna on the TV and subscribed to what then was called cable vision. Mm. So we had cable TV for the first time ever. And as part of the introductory package to our new cable service, we had like a month free of the Disney channel. That was considered like this premium channel back then (laughs) that you had to pay all this extra money for. And during that month, I remember seeing Donald in Math Magic Land, which is like this 30-minute feature film with Donald Duck where he's taken by a narrator through this exploration of how rational and mathematical nature actually is, and then also how rational and mathematical things like music are. And I was just awestruck, and it became my favorite Donald Duck cartoon of all time, and I've watched it repeatedly over the years. So I think if I had to pinpoint a moment when this all began, I would probably say the day that I saw Donald in Math Magic Land. Um, But... At that point in my life as a young child, um, and then growing up in a Christian home, going off to a Christian university, I was only very, very dimly aware that there was a perceived tension between religious faith and the scientific disciplines. Like I'd occasionally hear some murmuring about it, but I was very much in this Christian bubble of the rural South. So I I even managed to finish a biology degree at this Christian university, a well-regarded Christian university with a well-regarded biology program, um, without hearing much argument at all about um, whether um, one scientific finding was in tension with a Christian truth claim. So I graduate college. Um, My new husband and I moved to the big city of Houston, Texas, which was major culture shock for us in so many ways. And I went to work in the biotech industry where for the first time in my young life, I was surrounded by people with worldviews that were very, very different from mine. So here we are in a science lab, all these science-oriented people, and we start having conversations about the big questions, the existence of God and whether or not the Bible is reliable and so on and so forth. And through a series of very humiliating moments— I discovered that I wasn't at all prepared to interact with skeptics on these kinds of questions. I had grown up a cradle Christian, and I had a degree in the sciences, but I was at an utter loss. Mm. And even now, it's still crazy for me to think that despite uh, the background I grew up in, um, I didn't even hear the term apologetics until I began self-studying at the age of 23 Um, And then I'm like, why hadn't anyone ever told me about this? Why, Why didn't anyone tell me that there's this entire discipline dedicated to defending the truth claims of Christianity, and it has a whole branch that deals with the natural sciences? So, of Of course, I become a voracious reader of apologetics around that time, Um, and then became a stay-at-home mom about five years later and really got to devote a whole lot more time to self-study. So it all started, I guess, with the Donald Duck cartoon, and it ended up being, um, I guess, majorly sparked by being confronted with questions from non-believers that I wasn't equipped to answer. 
And that is such a common story when you, when you, you know, meet people who are really into apologetics and the apologetics crowd. So often that was a catalyst uh, for them was, was meeting someone who had a question they couldn't answer or challenged something they believed and they didn't know how to answer. That's my story. And it, it just sparked me to want to study and I was just wondering, why have I never heard some of these questions before? And you and I are both moms. And one of the things that you have talked about a lot is mom apologists and and why moms need to develop the life of the mind. Talk a little bit about that to our mom listeners who, who are tuning in today. So when my older son, who is, I can't believe, turning 15 next week, Mm -hmm. uh, I'm so old, when he was only seven years old, He asked me one afternoon out of the blue, hey, mommy, how do we know all this stuff in the Bible is not just made up like the stories we read in other books? How do we even know God is real? And I was one year into my studies at Biola and thankfully had enough knowledge under my belt to be able to have a good conversation with him about some of the reasons we can believe that God is actually real. I talked about something called the Kalam cosmological argument, which basically argues for God from the necessity of a cause for the universe's beginning and talked in very kid-friendly language about some of the ways we know that the universe hasn't always been here. So what that taught me um, was, number one, kids start asking huge, important questions about higher reality at a much younger age than we might expect them to. And if we are going to build in them a confidence about the faith that we're raising them in, we need to be willing to find answers if we don't already know them and to be able to use them in conversation with our kids in a way that they can understand. So, Not only has that been my personal experience, but it has also been the experience of many moms who have either emailed me or approached me at church and said, you have to help me. My child has asked this question and I don't know what to tell them. And where do I go for answers on this? Can you recommend a book? Or they'll say something like, you have to help me. My child has a a skeptical peer at school that is starting to influence them because they don't understand how to answer some of the challenges that are being raised by this other child. Um, Please point me in the right direction. So it's not just me. This is a broad phenomenon, and it's so important for moms, for both parents, to to prepare themselves or at the least know where to go to find answers to these questions when they finally arise. Uh, J. Warner Wallace wrote about a a woman who had come to him after one of his uh, lectures, and she said, my son is questioning his faith. He's got these friends at school that are saying these things. You know, can you recommend a book for me to give to him? And Jay Warner Wallace told her, no, you need to read the book. You're, you're the one who needs to read the book so you can talk to him. And I thought that was such an interesting way to go about it. It's, it's like he's basically saying, you can give your kid a book, but he's probably not going to read the book you give him. But if you know the information, if you're equipped, then you will be able to interact with your child about some of these skeptical questions that are coming up and, and are really just um, 
flourishing because of the internet and social media and all of that. So what is some practical advice, you know, a practical piece of advice you could give to moms and parents? I mean, this is dads too. We all need to be equipped that, that might say, I don't have time to study apologetics. What do I do? Uh, I felt that way too. When I started my formal studies, actually, I had um, a very young elementary age son. And then I had one that I don't even think he was out of diapers yet. So I totally get the juggle of taking care of your marriage and taking care of your kids and taking care of your home and cooking dinner and doing the shopping and running the errands. I totally get that. But I was so passionate about obtaining this knowledge that just felt like a gold mine to me, um, not only as a mom, but as a Christian wanting to fulfill the Great Commission in an area where I did still, even after leaving the workforce, rub shoulders with skeptics. So what I figured out was just a little bit of reprioritizing my time and making full use of the glories of technology um, as far as podcasts and YouTube videos and the blogs that are written by some excellent, reputable Christian apologists out there where you can just sit down and spend five minutes getting a bite-sized answer to a question you've been thinking about or to a question that's been raised um, with you that you didn't know the answer to. It's possible to plug in little snippets of learning in a whole lot more places in your day-to-day life than people actually realize if it's not a habit that, that they've ever had before. Laundry time became um, a great fun for me because I could sit on the sofa with my piles of clean laundry and I could turn on a YouTube video or turn on a podcast and I could be learning and while I was doing something practical that had to be done to keep the household running or when I'm cooking dinner or maybe I've gone and dropped the kids off somewhere and I listened to a little bit of a podcast on my way back home or for moms that work outside the home, that commute can easily be filled with some audio learning, audio books, podcasts, um, and so on and so forth. So I would just say, start thinking about those moments throughout your day-to-day life that could be maximized um, with just some introductory level learning. And then you'd be surprised at how you keep finding more and more little pockets of time to use that way. It's really true. When when I first started studying apologetics, I had a newborn. My, my son was just a little bitty baby. And uh, even at the end, toward the end of my pregnancy, and then when he was born is when I was really kind of getting into it. And so I viewed my iPhone as my seminary. <laughs> you know, I would just, while I'm <laughs> nursing or whatever it was, you know, just put something on to listen to. And uh, audiobooks are an awesome way, especially if you're the kind of learner. I learn very well by listening. So I always found that to be uh, so valuable. It's like, don't, don't devalue the, the, glories, like you said, of to the technology we have of, of a good audiobook. It's, it's a great thing to uh, take advantage of. Then you can pause, you know, for later and you don't have to do the whole thing all at once. But, um, you know, we all, we all make time for what we want to make time for. Uh, so science and religion is, you know, those things together. It's a fairly broad field of study, including everything from history to philosophy, biology, astrophysics. Do you have uh, a particular niche that you limit your work to? 
you know, I really love all of it. And you mentioned earlier that it's a little unusual to find someone who isn't just specializing in one particular area. And I have to give a lot of credit to the science and religion program at Biola University, where I did my master's, because I went from self-study and spending a whole lot of time in more, I guess you could say, scientific um What's the best way to describe it? So arguments, philosophical arguments that used scientific data to try to support one very specific and narrow view of the Genesis creation narrative. Mm. So I spent several years very, very, very focused on that endeavor. So when I entered Biola, one of the wonderful things about that program is that they're very open to a broad spectrum of ways to approach the areas where science overlaps with the doctrine of creation. Mm. Um, And not only that, but they also introduced me to the fact that science and religion by necessity has to be very interdisciplinary. If we don't understand the history of ideas that have contributed to the conversations we're having today, then we are really handicapped. Um, And if we don't understand the philosophy behind it, then we're in grave danger of making fallacious arguments um, for for our position or against the position of someone that we're in dialogue with. So really, if you're going to be a specialist in this broad discipline we're calling science and religion, you have to have a pretty good foundation in several different areas. And I love all of them. And I'll go through seasons where I'll interact with one subtopic a lot, and then I'll get, you know, a little bit of closure on that, and I'll move over to something else and focus on that really hard. But right now, because I'm entering the dissertation phase of my PhD program, I'm very specifically focused on interesting problems that the mathematical sciences pose for the worldview of naturalism. So I am particularly fascinated by the fact that our universe has been shown to be fundamentally mathematical. Now, I am not a mathematician, and I will never be a mathematician. But what I can say with confidence and what I am able to read and study without too much trouble um, is the philosophical thought that has been applied to this problem of the universe being mathematical and what that implies about the existence of God and what it implies about the nature of man. So I'm very absorbed in the history and the philosophy and the science and a little tiny bit of the mathematics that all feeds into that um, big question. You mentioned the special problems that the mathematical nature of the universe raises for the worldview of naturalism. And for any listeners that may not Uh, know what that worldview is. Can you explain what naturalism is and then elaborate a little bit on what you meant by special problems uh, that the mathematical nature of the universe raises for that particular worldview? Sure. So naturalism, as I'm defining it, 
is the claim that there is no such thing as God or anything like God, and there is no such thing as the immaterial human soul. Okay, so these problems that I alluded to a moment ago, it's a very interesting, a very interconnected set of problems, and they've been discussed and debated by great thinkers in the West for a really long time. One of them is the problem of the applicability of mathematics to the natural world, Um, and to break that down a little bit, it's the fact that mathematical systems, which are constructed by the human mind, actually turn out to be incredibly useful in scientific discovery. So back in 1960, there was this landmark essay about this problem written by an agnostic theoretical physicist. It was a Hungarian by the name of Eugene Wigner. And he called the applicability of mathematics to nature something mysterious bordering on the miraculous. And I would encourage all listeners to Google this paper. So it's Eugene Wigner, Wigner spelled with a W. um, And the title of the paper is um, The Applicability of Mathematics to the Natural Sciences. I think that's the official title. But if you if you Google that, then you're going to get a free copy of the paper pop up somewhere. So that was back in 1960. And then now here we are 60 years later and philosophers and physicists, both theists and non-theists, are still pondering why this is. Why does mathematics map onto the physical world with the kind of depth and precision that it does? And two examples I love to use are Dr. Roger Penrose and Dr. Max Tegmark. So both of these guys are physicists. Both of them are non-theists, and yet they write and speak extensively on this. And they acknowledge fully that it's something deeply mysterious that the naturalistic paradigm doesn't seem to answer. And then there's a Christian by the name of John Polkinghorne. He's a retired physicist, now turned Anglican priest, and he's written a whole lot about this issue in several of his books. And then another problem besides this applicability of mathematics to the natural world is the fact that we as human beings actually have the intellectual capacity necessary to carry out this crazy, sophisticated mathematics that's involved in scientific fields such as theoretical physics. And that raises questions in areas like evolutionary neurobiology, as well as philosophy of mind. So how is it that we have brains that are superb superfluous, that's a word I struggle with, (laughs) superfluously, there we go, Um, advanced in terms of being able to do these higher mathematics problems when, according to evolutionary biology, um, we became fully human um, out on the savannas where this kind of capability wasn't at all necessary. So it raises problems in that area, but in philosophy of mind, it also raises the problem of human rationality. Um, And there are philosophers out there who have argued, hey, if 
the material world is all there is. If naturalism is true and there's no such thing as God and there's no such thing as the immaterial human soul, then the kind of rationality that we actually have would have been would be impossible. Mm. So if the workings of our minds, in other words, were merely the result of physics and chemistry doing the blind processes that they do, then there would be no such thing as um, consciously working through a math problem of our own free will and making the kinds of judgments involved in scientific research. So um, really interesting problems related to this intersection of mathematics and science and philosophy. And it's again, it's nothing new. The same year that Eugene Wigner's essay came out was the year that C.S. Lewis released his revised edition of his book called Miracles. And in the book, he actually makes an argument similar to what I just said about how if materialism is true, then we wouldn't have human rationality. You have a brand new book uh, called Science in the Mind of the Maker. Uh, tell us about the title and about just the, the central idea of the book. What, what are you trying to communicate with this book? So Science in the Mind of the Maker, that title will ring a bell with anyone who's even a little bit familiar with the work of Dorothy Sayers. Dorothy Sayers was a theologian and a fiction writer who was a good friend of C.S. Lewis. And she wrote a book that became quite renowned, especially in the Christian education community. And the title of that book was The Mind of the Maker. And in that book, she talks about how when we read a great work of literature, a path is opened up, metaphorically speaking, between our mind and the mind of the writer of that work or the literary artist. Um, And it's through their work that the author actually communicates something of their own mind to the reader. And that's why she entitled the book, The Mind of the Maker. She's referring to the literary artist and what it is we learn about their mind by experiencing their art. So when I read Sayer's book, I was immediately reminded of a famous statement made by my favorite figure from the scientific revolution, Johannes Kepler. And Kepler said that when we investigate the universe and discover all of its elegant mathematical laws, we are essentially thinking God's thoughts after him. In other words, we're discovering something about the rational plan behind creation, a plan that existed from eternity in the mind of God. So I thought it very appropriate to play off Dorothy Sayers' book title um, and name my book Science and the Mind of the Maker because that is the central idea that the book is interested in. When we look at the natural world through various scientific disciplines and also using different branches of philosophy, um, what is it all converging upon? What truths is it converging upon? And what is it communicating to us? And the central thesis of the book is that um, at the end of the day, we seem to be experiencing a very special kind of resonance between 
our minds, our rational human minds, um, the rational created order and the rationality um, in the mind of our maker. So in your book, you call this cosmic resonance. Talk, talk a little bit more about that concept of cosmic resonance. What I mean by cosmic resonance is that the obvious, enormous success of the scientific enterprise um, in terms of unlocking many of nature's secrets, that alone strongly imp- implies the existence of a maker. Um, and not just a maker, um, not just this remote deist type of creator, mm. but a maker that obviously desires to share at least some of his mind with creatures. And in Christianity, we say that we are able to experience the world the way that we do and sense these higher realities because we are made in the image of God. So I connect the ability to do science and the circumstances that we live in on our home planet and in the universe, more broadly speaking, that makes science even possible in the first place. So in other words, it seems um, very likely from looking at all this collective evidence that there is a maker who wanted us to be able to discover something about his mind when we carry out um, scientific investigation. So is this, is this a new argument for the existence of God, or is this something kind of brand new? It actually is, is not. Um, maybe the way I'm formulating it is novel. I hope that it is, and I think that it is. But the roots of this argument go pretty far back. I mean, we can go back to um, even before the dawn of Christianity. We see some of the basic ideas in ancient Greek philosophy and some of the first century writings of Judaism. And then if you go forward a little bit after the dawn of Christianity, we see glimmers of it in the writings of the church fathers. And we can actually trace this little thread up through the great thinkers of the scientific revolution, especially Johannes Kepler, who I mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. Um, And some some who study theology or patristics are probably aware that the early church fathers used this beautiful metaphor called the book of nature Mm. metaphor. And the idea is that creation, like scripture, is a vehicle by which God reveals himself to mankind, a creature made in his own image. So these church fathers writing about the book of nature, they saw it as a form of revelation that can be used in tandem with the special revelation that we find in scripture. And they insisted that it would, they would always harmonize with each other. So the book of nature um, and the special book of scripture would never conflict with each other when both are properly understood. Um, And so what I've tried to do in my book is weave together the history and the philosophy and the modern science and the most cutting edge science um, 
all of these disciplines together to show that this idea of the resonance between God's mind, the created order, and the mind of man, um, that this resonance is more robust now in light of everything we know about physics and cosmology and biology and earth science and philosophy than it was when the arguments the argument was first being entertained centuries and centuries ago. And that, to me, is a remarkable fact. And it it points back to what I said earlier about the importance of knowing something about the history of the ideas that we're interacting with. Because if we can say, look, over time, this very, very old argument has only gotten stronger Mm. in light of new data, it seems to me that that's even more of a reason to believe that it's true. That that is powerful, really, when you you think about it in that way. Uh, So... In regards to this book, for even within the Christian world, some science topics and faith topics can uh, be contentious. There can be tension there and even uh, divisive within the church. And so for, for people who are considering getting this book, what specific approach do you take in the book when it comes to some of the more divisive arguments like age of the earth, things like that? What, what approach do you take? In the very first chapter of the book, I outline my what I call my philosophy of science and faith. And I actually give it a name. I call it the mere creation philosophy. In the spirit of C.S. Lewis's mere Christianity philosophy of apologetics. So I encourage readers to just take a deep breath and take a giant step back from these issues that we seem to love to argue about, like the age of the earth and the theory of biological common descent. And after we take a step back from those, we then turn and look at the question of a creator from a cosmic perspective. So we can get at the overarching issue which transcends those subsidiary issues. Mm. Now, we can ask, do we have compelling reasons to believe that there is a mind behind the universe, one that created us to be aware of him? And if we can make a strong case for that in the affirmative, showing that um, the gospel of John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3 is actually highly credible, that the word, the logos, the divine reason is responsible for creation, then we've reached a key stepping stone that has to be there in front of us in order to get all the way to John 1.14, which tells us that the Word then became flesh and dwelt among us. So my conviction behind this mere creation philosophy of scientific apologetics is that the central goal should be to help people become open to considering the existence of God. And then once they become open to that, they can consider the claims about the person of Jesus Christ. And then those secondary issues, all those in-house debates that Christians tend to divide over, can really become stumbling blocks Mm -hmm. to belief 
for the skeptic. And I think that's just tragic. Mm. Now, it's not to say that those secondary issues are unimportant. Sure, we should talk about them. Again, these are in-house issues. But I'm convinced we truly need a revolution in the church Mm. in terms of having charitable attitudes towards anyone with whom we disagree on these kinds of topics. And that's why I think the mere creation approach, um, one that we can all unite on and keep the main things the main things, is a good way to go, especially when it comes to the project of evangelism. Well, we're about out of time. Is there anything else you want to add uh, before we go today? Let's see. What would I like to add? (laughs) Well, I very much hope that my book will be a help to Christian laypersons in particular. I wrote this book with the average Jane and Joe in the church pew in my mind. So although it deals with some scientific topics at a level most lay people may not have experienced before, I worked very hard to write it in such a way and to explain things in such a way that they can be grasped without too much mental sweat. Mm. So I hope that when people see the word science in the title of the book, that won't be scary to them. That um, they'll give it a give it a chance and maybe become better equipped to have conversations with um, family members and friends, colleagues about why there is a great harmony and even a great synergy between science and the Christian faith. The book is called Science and the Mind of the Maker, What the Conversation Between Faith and Science Reveals About God. Melissa, thank you so much for being on the show today, and I think people are going to get a lot out of it. Oh, my pleasure. I hope so. Thank you. listening to this podcast, you can sign up to receive my posts by email by going to alisachilders.com and clicking the subscribe button, or simply subscribe to the Alisa Childers podcast on iTunes. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.